There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. These are very unsettling, unstable times. Crazy things are going on around us in the world, in our society, in our culture, and I'm sure it's disturbing to you. I know it's disturbing to me, and it seems like the dark, ominous clouds, the swirling clouds of tribulation are rushing toward this generation, and we've got to have solid answers about what awaits us in the future. And of course, the hope of believers, the hope of the sons and daughters of God is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, which has been termed the rapture. Actually, the word rapture is not a biblical word, but it describes a biblical event. And so I don't have a problem with using that term, but the area that we need to nail down is when that catching away, which is my preferred term for it, when that will take place. There are five main views concerning the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto him. Number one is the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Number two is the mid-tribulation rapture theory. Number three is something called the pre-wrath rapture, which is somewhere between the middle and the end of the tribulation era. Number four is the post-tribulation rapture. And number five is no rapture at all. Those who believe in the idea of the manifested sons of God also believe that the second coming of the Lord is within his people, that he will emerge in us and the body of Christ will be manifested in glorious ways in the last days. Now, I do not embrace that idea. And strangely, the idea of the manifested sons of God being the return of Jesus. In fact, I've heard some people say all the Jesus you'll ever see is in us. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. And one of the reasons is I uh, was confronted with that belief when I was a new ager 50 years ago. That's a primary idea you find in New Age spirituality, the coming of Christ being an in mass return throughout the entire human race, which is quite similar. But my belief is that the tribulation period will be something that the church experiences and that the catching away of the saints happens at the very end, a post-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture mindset. I believe that's the correct one. However, I want to preface everything else I say on this podcast with this statement. I love 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul said, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, talking about the day of his coming. And not to me only, but also to all 
who have loved his appearing. All of those who are in love with the idea of Jesus coming back again and the kingdom of God being restored to this world in fullness and paradise being the condition of this planet once again. I'm in love with that idea. And I guarantee you, those who embrace a pre-tribulation rapture concept are in love with the idea of the coming of the Lord. Those who embrace a mid-tribulation concept of the catching away are in love with the idea of the resurrection of the saints and the rapture of living believers. Those who embrace a pre-wrath or a post-tribulation view also are in love with the idea of the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will split in two, and then he will pass through the Eastern Gate and set up the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. That makes me shout inwardly. I'm already shouting inside in anticipation of this crazy world that is so full of evil, being subdued under the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when he will reign on this planet. And so our differences in opinion, and this is very important, our differences in opinion concerning the timing of the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead and the catching away of living believers is not as important as our love for that event. Because he said those who love this appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ will receive a crown of righteousness. And James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So this crown of righteousness, this crown of life is reserved for lovers of God, not just for those who get every bit of their eschatological theology correct, but those who love him deeply. First Peter 5, 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive a crown of glory, which will never fade away. And I say that to all born again, blood washed lovers of God who love his appearing. A crown of glory, the glorious eminence of the presence of God in a glorified state, in a resurrected body, awaits you. And you and I can endure the craziness of this world in anticipation of that. See, let's go, though, to the defining of certain terms and examining certain scriptures that I believe prove a post-tribulation view of the coming of the Lord and the catching away of the saints and the resurrection of the dead. Because the Bible doesn't talk about the disappearing of the saints. It talks about the appearing of the Lord. Nowhere in Scripture do you find it emphasized that his coming will be in secret and that the saints will suddenly disappear. Quite the contrary, it said, every eye will see him, even to the point where his radiance goes down into the lower worlds itself. And it said, not only will every eye see him, but those who pierced him, those who crucified him, will behold his majesty when he returns in flaming fire and with all his holy angels. That will be an event that will rock 
planet Earth. Can you imagine? It's such an important event. Not one angel will be missing. Now, there are eight primary points that I believe prove that the rapture of the church will take place at the end of the age. And I believe each one of these points is an extremely valuable insight into Scripture. First of all, the issue of the church. Now, I was saved back in 1970, and that was during the Jesus Movement era. And one of the popular books of the Jesus Movement era was Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, that promotes a pre-tribulation theory. And like many others, I read that book and entertained that idea for a while. But then when I really started studying Scripture, and that's something we all have to do, you have to not just receive insights from other people, but go to the Bible yourself. Don't just receive what I have to say on this podcast. Go to the Bible yourself and search it out and make sure you have a personal revelation from God. People don't do that as much as they should now. But one of the arguments I heard back then, and I don't remember if it was in Hal's book or not, uh, it probably was because it was a very emphasized argument was that the word church doesn't appear in the book of Revelation after the first three chapters. So therefore, right prior to the tribulation period being described, the church must have made an exit because you don't find the word church anymore from that point forward. I have two main responses to that. Number one, the word church describing the entire body of Christ, all the people of God in the New Covenant era, never appears in the book of Revelation. You find the word church applied to seven individual local churches that John sent specific messages to, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, the church at Ephesus, etc. But you never find the entire corporate body of Christ referred to with a singular term, the church, referring to all of God's people. And so that's a faulty argument. That is a weak argument. Also, there are other terms in the book of Revelation that refer to God's people that are used all through that book, like the word saints or the words the bride, the lamb's wife. Those are references to the people of God. And besides, if the beast makes war with the saints, how can he do that? And the beast is a term for the Antichrist. If he makes war with the saints, how can he do that if they are not here? And if you'll go back in early church literature, and I wish I had time to bring out a lot of quotes. I've got a whole line of books back here on prophecies of the last days and the coming of the Lord, etc. And in some of them, I have hundreds of quotes of early church fathers who believed that the church would face the tribulation of being under assault from the beast regime in the last days. So we have to be here for that to take place. Part of the reasoning is because of the fourth chapter, first verse of the book of Revelation. Let me read it to you. 
after he gives the seven messages to the seven churches. And he ends by saying, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and uh, open the door, I will come into him and sup with him or dine with him and he with me. And he that overcomes the same will sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. Now, right after that statement, you have verse one of chapter four. But of course, those chapters and verses didn't exist originally in the Bible. And so it's a continuation of thought. Jesus said, if you overcome, you'll sit with me in my throne. And then after these things, John looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And the assumption is that statement, come up here, is not to John the Revelator, but to the whole church being raptured. But you have to stretch that verse beyond its original intent, I believe, in order to make that applicable to the church. It was just John hearing a voice about him transitioning in this vision where instead of the Lord knocking on the door of his heart, a door opened in heaven. So there's a message in that. John opened the door to his heart and God opened the door to his heart. And uh, that could preach. But anyway, you cannot base a doctrine on a symbol or a metaphorical comparison or some kind of veiled statement taken out of context, which is exactly what people do when they take Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and try to make that applicable to the church, because it wasn't directed to the church. It was directed to John. Number two of eight concepts that I'm going to bring forth, the Matthew 24 discourse does not make any sense if the church is gone from this world. Now, let me show you how it begins. Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And he said, do you not see all of these things? Assuredly, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then Jesus said something very shocking. Of course, he said, uh, uh, that the temple was going to be destroyed. And then a little while after that, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So really there's three questions there. When shall these things be? What things? The tearing down, the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. So you've got to remember those three questions being posed. Now, because in 70 AD, Titus sacked Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple and, and it was torn down. It was on fire. It was completely engulfed in fire. Many people, not, not a majority, but many people do embrace something called preterism. Preterism is the belief that last day's prophecies throughout the Bible, but specifically here in Matthew 24, have already been fulfilled historically. 
and that to posit that they are future events is wrong. Well, my response to that is yes and no. (laughs) I see it both ways. Yes, it was fulfilled historically, but I believe there is yet a future fulfillment on a higher level. And God does that very often. I could give you an example that I spoke on recently on one of our podcasts, Isaiah 8.18, where Isaiah said, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. And on a foundational level, it referred to his two sons, Shear Jashub and Mehir Shalal Hashbaj. Isn't that a name you want to give one of your children? And their names were prophetic about what was going to happen in Israel. But then that same prophecy was a reference, according to Hebrews 2.13, of the new covenant era and the people of God that would be born of God in the New Testament era and become a means of God producing signs and wonders in this time, in this age. And so one prophecy is fulfilled on more than one level. And God does that because God is a genius at doing that. So I don't see that all of this was fulfilled and sealed up and completed in 70 AD or shortly after. I believe there are yet future things that we can look forward to. The first thing Jesus said was, take heed that no one deceive you because deception is going to be one of the dominant things cloaking the planet in the last days and more, uh, more prominent now more uh, evident now than it ever has been because of the way mass media can manipulate the global populace into believing things that are not so. And so psychological warfare is going on all the time and people don't even know it. They're being duped into believing things that are not so, but the ruling elite want them to believe that. And I could go into that, but I'm not going to take the time. Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. Hmm. Now, if the pre-tribulation rapture was true, then Jesus would have prefaced all of this with a statement, a very clear statement, that you don't have to worry about this because God's people are going to be whisked out of here before any of this happens, but then the ungodly will be plunged into this condition. But he directed these statements to his disciples who were representative of the body of Christ to come who would live in these days. And he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. He said, all of these are the beginning of sorrows, which incidentally is the phrase that describes the beginning of what probably is a seven-year-long period at the end of this age. And that's based on the prophecies of Daniel. But the beginning portion of it is not called the Great Tribulation. It's called the beginning of sorrows. There's a pivotal point where it shifts over to the Great Tribulation. And then Jesus said, they will deliver you up to tribulation 
and kill you, and you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. If we're gone, how can we be hated of all nations for his name's sake? And I know there is a certain response that pre-tribulation believers have concerning that, that there will be a a number of people converted during that seven-year tribulation period. But again, I believe Jesus would have indicated that clearly. There is absolutely no scripture in the entire Bible that clearly states the church will be caught up out of here seven years in advance. Quite the contrary, he said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And I know that that's not an easy thing to hear. But try telling the Christians of North Korea that they will escape tribulation. Try telling the persecuted Christians in India or in China that they will escape the tribulation. They're already going through it. Try to tell our dear Nigerian friends who at any moment can be attacked by Boko Haram and and churches blown up and, and dozens of churchgoers murdered. Tell them that they will escape the tribulation. It's already happening. Thank God it's not happening in the United States yet, and I pray it never does. But he said, then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Well, he's not talking about people in the world their love growing cold. He's talking about those who have love for truth, love for God, love for their religious belief system. But when they're under this oppressive attack, their love for these things will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Again, if we're gone, there's no call to endurance necessary. And he wasn't just talking to Jews who are saved during the tribulation period, or he would have underscored that. And then he uh, brought it to a certain climax in this whole discourse in verse 14. And he said, this gospel of the kingdom, not denominationalism, but this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. So the last days will be a time of the proclamation of the gospel that will exceed anything we've ever seen before. I believe it will be a time of great revival, great spiritual awakening in the world. And Jesus was very plain about that. Now, number three, one of the arguments is the issue of the elect. Many times I've heard people say, well, when Matthew 24 talks about the elect, it's referring primarily to the Jews that will be saved when a predominantly Gentile church escapes in the pre-tribulation rapture, which to me smacks a little bit of anti-Semitism because I don't believe any of us are worthy of escaping anything that uh, could be horrendous in life. But God's grace and God's mercy protects us when we walk with him. So that, that, that bothers me somewhat. But they say the word elect refers to those Jewish people 
who received the Messiah during the tribulation period. However, the word elect simply means chosen. And the word elect is used quite often in reference to the entire church throughout the New Testament. Why would it be any different in Matthew 24? For instance, in Romans 8, 33, the Bible says, who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, don't hold up somebody's past over them if they've been washed in the blood and chosen by God, elected by God, because it is God who justifies them, who who has cleansed them from all sin and rendered them righteous in the sight of heaven. So if Romans 8.33 refers to the elect, and it includes me and you and every other born-again person, whether you're Jew or Gentile, then that's not going to change in Matthew 24 for some strange reason. Now, there are three primary times in Matthew 24 that the word elect appears. And of course, there's parallel passages in Mark chapter 13. First of all, well... Let me drop back to verse 15 of Matthew 24. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And again, people say that was fulfilled uh, in 70 AD when the holy place was defiled. But uh, I believe it will be fulfilled on a higher level in the coming era, in the coming assault on truth worldwide when this man of peace by peace will destroy many this false messiah will be ushered into a prominent position worldwide and sit in the temple of god and proclaim himself to be god that's the abomination of desolation or the abomination that brings desolation on the planet and he said when you see it he didn't say when they see it when the people of the world see it He said, when you see it, speaking to his disciples, representative of all the church yet to come, and especially the church who will be alive in this hour. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant or to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. That's when the tribulation starts. Great tribulation kicks in after the abomination of desolation takes place. And then in verse 22, it says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That's a reference to the born-again, blood-washed believers who are alive during this final period of time. We're still here. And the days are going to be shortened for the church of the living God that is providing a kingdom witness worldwide and persecuted as a result. Because by the way, the eighth beatitude of eight wonderful statements Jesus made at the beginning of his ministry 
ends up with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You walk the path that leads to godliness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it takes you right into persecution. And so it's not something we should be surprised at. Then in verse 24, he said, false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But see, the elect will not be deceived because we have that internal witness of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will let us know, that will let us know who is real and who is false, what is real and what is false. And so the elect will not be deceived. I believe that. And then in verse 39 through verse 41, the third time you find this word elect in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, he'll return just like he went away. The clouds received him, and he'll return with rolling clouds of the glory of God, and I believe rolling natural clouds in the atmosphere as he penetrates into this realm. And the light of the sun will be like the light of seven days. That's why everyone in the world will be aware of it happening simultaneously. Every eye will see him if some spaceship can make a circuit around the whole planet as it comes into land or comes back into the atmosphere, how much more if the king of kings comes in, possibly he'll make a circuit around the whole planet, illuminate the atmosphere like the sunlight of seven days. Believe me, no one will miss that. No one will miss that. He will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And I love the Matthew 13, verse 27, parallel passage to that. It says, then he will send forth his angels and gather together his elect from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. He will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So the elect that have died and gone on will be gathered to this event. The elect that are still in the earth will be gathered to this event when the dead in Christ rise and living believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I'm going to have to continue this teaching next week because we've already used up about 30 minutes and and I've got at least another 30 minutes of teaching on these eight things that you need to hear about that prove a post-tribulation catching away of the church. And by the way, I want to emphasize too, if you come to our website, thetruelight.net, you'll find that these podcasts are posted in a video format. And you can also download this free booklet, The Highest Adventure, Encountering God. And it's available in English. It's also in, available in Spanish and Portuguese. It's available in Japanese and Chinese. It's available in Hindi. It's available in a number of different languages. And it's all about my story of coming out of Eastern religions and becoming a believer back in 1970. So come to the website, thetruelight.net, thetruelight.net. 
Get your free booklet and watch this as well as hearing the podcast. Thank you for being a part of this. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.